Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail... COVID-19, controlling the controllables and how to manage your anxiety in an extended age of uncertainty. So, I think you'll agree, things are getting pretty weird. People are rushing out to buy hand sanitizer and toilet paper, but some people are actually stocking up on something very different. Yeah, gun sales have been up since the outbreak began. And people are getting pretty anxious. Irrational fears flared this morning in this Woolworths as accusations of assault let fly. And even for mature, fully grown adults, that's somewhat understandable, right? Like, I'm a bit anxious about COVID-19, but I think the main reason is because other people, as in people who actually know what they're talking about, are anxious. So when does rational concern turn into irrational fear, and how do we keep that anxiety in check? Karen Nimmo is a clinical psychologist based in Wellington, and I began by asking her whether people who think like me are being stupid. No, no, of course not. Um, it is totally normal because it's all around us. Uh, you're right, there are experts talking about it. It's new and it's uncertain. Every day and often every hour we're getting fresh updates. So, you know, of course we're going to be anxious. And you have to remember too that for many people, dying is their greatest fear. So the end game for coronavirus is death and people often can't move their thoughts away from that. Is there a difference between individual anxiety and what you describe as mass anxiety? Mass anxiety is more about when fear spreads through either a group or a population and then it escalates. So you end up getting a combination of extreme worry and irrational thoughts and feelings and beliefs, which can lead to disruptions and being able to function in a normal sort of way. So your behaviour will change or your thinking will change and you'll do things that are a little bit out of character. Is it sort of like adults being scared of the dark? Like it's a little bit irrational, but it's also not that irrational because the dark represents the unknown. That's right, and so does coronavirus. Uncertainty is possibly the greatest maintaining factor for anxiety. And so whenever we're in an uncertain space, anxiety tends to ramp up. You know, we all as humans, we like to feel we're in control. So, and many people live their lives that way. They like that feeling that they know what, where it's going and what's happening. And when we don't know what's happening, that's when it tends to spin out a little bit, particularly if we're prone to it. Are there little things people can do to sort of manufacture some semblance of control and, and authority in their lives? Run your household well. Try and stay in the moment. Make sure that you do connect with loved ones because... It's really important. In times of crisis, we have a a psychological drive to connect with loved ones, and obviously that's to make sure that everybody's okay. But also, we do feel comfortable when we attach to people who are meaningful to us. So if your loved ones are not around you, it's important to stay in touch through technology, but also on a wider scale. I mean, it's not hard to send a text to, to someone who you think might be struggling. 
So I think we should show compassion in that regard and reach out and just keep an eye on people who could be a little bit lonely in, in the world around us. What are the sort of telltale signs of mass anxiety? I think you just see changes in people's behaviour. For example, you'll be in the supermarket, as I was the other day, and you'll see people, uh, they weren't grabbing things and the shelves weren't empty, but the trolleys were maxed out and they were brimming and you could see the, the rice and the pasta and the toilet rolls and the tissues spilling out of them. You know, that's not a normal shop. So you can see people change their behaviour to accommodate what they think is going on. And when you see somebody else do it, it's fairly easy to catch it. And that's the thing with uh, anxiety. It's highly contagious. Fear loves company, and so trips from one person to the next. You know, I was with a client the other day, and I, she was highly anxious. And I noticed that by the time the session ended, she was calm and sort of smoothed out and in control and looked 10 years younger. I noticed that I felt anxious. My heart started to beat quicker, and I felt a little bit of a ripple, which I'm not an anxious person. And it was a good reminder to me about how quickly that can transfer when someone around you is anxious. When is it irrational to be anxious about something versus being rationally anxious about something? Yeah, it's a thin line, but I think what what you need to take note of is when it disables normal function. So when you start behaving in out-of-character ways, doing things you wouldn't normally do or not doing things you would normally do, like you sort of spend so much time in your head that you don't get on with other things or you don't go out and do the things we are allowed to do. You sort of put things on hold all the time. I think that's when it starts to get a little bit out of whack and we have to make sure we don't let it run away with us. Is one of the difficult things here that everybody's situation is different? So it's difficult to talk in broad, sweeping sort of statements like it might be irrational for me to worry about dying from COVID-19, but it's not irrational for someone who's 90 years old and has just had a, a round of chemotherapy to worry about dying. Well, you're right. I mean, everybody's an individual, but uh, if you get a 90-year-old man who's recently been through chemo, he may have already stared death in the face, so he may not be as anxious as you. And people are not predictable, so they don't run in straight lines. It's impossible to look at a person and go, hey, they're highly anxious, unless they're displaying, obviously, all the traits. But you can feel it when you get alongside someone. And within households, you're right, that, that can be a real problem because one partner can be highly anxious and one can be not, and then Children can be not anxious and the parents are. So, you know, there is a real discrepancy between how we play it. Yeah, I mean, you had on something quite interesting there. I mean, even talking about my own relationship, my partner, she is a warrior. I am not quite so much of a warrior. I'm a bit more relaxed. But that can sort of lead to a bit of tension in relationships when there's a discrepancy in anxiety levels. How would you tell people to sort of approach that? That's absolutely true. And in the case of coronavirus, if somebody's a little more prone to health anxiety, then that's going to show up. If you are the less anxious person, you have to be empathetic and at least try to stand in the other person's shoes because we can't all play it the same. You have to offer reassurance. But at the same time, I think it's important to put boundaries around it. It's no, not helpful at all to talk about coronavirus 24-7 and to let it drip feed through your evenings and through all the time that you have together. So you have to sit down, I think, if it's running away on you and make a little bit of a plan. You can offer to talk about it in small blocks uh, and then distract and do other things. But there are good ways of managing it. 
The trick is to recognise when somebody's in a way different space to somebody else and then to address it from there. People are talking a lot about the idea of leadership at the moment and I guess that's mainly sort of aimed at authority figures, you know, officers of health and the Prime Minister and so on and so forth, but does leadership also exist in smaller units, within, even within family units, I guess? Absolutely. I think, the, I mean, we, we all look at leadership at government level and hope that it's sound and fact-based, but also at home, as I said before, the really important thing is whoever is front and centre of the home, the parents usually, that they model good behaviour and conduct themselves in ways that, that is going to inspire calm amongst everybody else. Because that's super important at the moment. It's, uh, we don't need, you know, parents ramping up their kids. That's that's actually a little on the mean side if you think about it. So first and foremost, make sure if you're the adult, you do what you can do to spread the calm word. One of the more difficult situations here, which applies to lots of people, is how to explain what's going on to your kids, particularly young kids, because they will know something's going on, just not necessarily what or why or what it actually means. And you don't want to disrespect your child's intelligence, but you also don't want to totally freak them out. So what do you do? I think the same principles apply. So you tell the truth and you answer questions, but obviously not overkill. Um, It's a good opportunity to stress health hygiene and safety. But I still hold true to the fact that the number one thing parents can do for their kids is to watch their own behaviour and their words and to model good, sound, calm behaviour within the house because those little sets of eyes and those little ears are flapping and they copy us. So we need to make sure that first and foremost we manage ourselves well. I think you can just tell kids to to feel free to ask questions at any time and to reassure them and to ask open questions too, but of course not to keep raising it because sometimes kids have got no clue and they don't need to have. What about older kids, sort of intermediate or high school age kids, teenagers, you know, who are intelligent enough and aware enough to understand a bit about what's going on, but maybe not the full picture? Yeah, a little more tricky because as we know, kids often don't talk openly to their parents at that age. Mm. So I think the best question to ask for kids of that age is, what do you already know? And that's nice and open and they can tell you what they know. And then you have an opportunity if something's badly wrong to correct it gently and to make sure they're informed with accurate information. But also to tell them that at the moment, you know, we may have to adapt our plans and change things because life is a little bit different. But we do have to carry on where possible and keep some routines and structure in place. And again, as I said with the little kids, to watch your own behaviour because just because they're teenagers doesn't mean they're not looking at you. In fact, they're probably looking with a more critical eye. So it's really important that we step up ourselves first. At the other end of the scale, some people might have elderly relatives, uh, very old relatives, maybe people whose uh, mental faculties aren't quite what they used to be and who might be understandably fearful about the world at the moment. I think Actually, I think old people are really stoic in that way. So they've they've seen a lot. 
So they tend perhaps not to worry in the way we do when we're younger. However, I think there are some other threats to their mental health, which are loneliness, isolation, bit of depression. Because if you think about an older person's life, it's already starting to close down. And when you get something like coronavirus, they can do even less than they did before and their friends can't visit and that sort of thing. So I think loneliness down the track and also for people who have to self-isolate for lengthy periods is uh, quite a psychological threat. Yeah, I did want to ask you about that, but I mean, many people returning to New Zealand will have to spend many days in self-isolation, and that can mean a lot of time to think and be alone with your thoughts. What are your views on this? Is it something that we should be thinking about, or is distraction and our hobbies quite important at times like that? Yeah, they are super important, but I think, I mean, we don't have to shut our feelings and thoughts out altogether. We have to acknowledge what's going on, and it would be abnormal, wouldn't it, not to think about repercussions and things when you're self-isolating, sitting there by yourself. It's it's a lot of open space. So it's really important to keep structure in your days, to map out your days in advance, to have things to do, to go outside where where possible. We're still allowed to breathe and to be out there and go for walks and things like that. Um, And not to snack on news, so don't feed yourself a constant diet of coronavirus updates. You know, that's just not helpful. If if you think about it, if you can turn it around, it is a good chance to catch up on some things that you wouldn't normally do. So that can be useful. And uh, as a psychologist, I think one of the greatest life skills you can have is to be able to be alone. So, you know, there, there are some side benefits to it if you can keep yourself in a mental space that allows you to see that. Presumably this is going to be a really challenging time for people with clinically diagnosed mental health conditions, people who might recognise the signs of anxiety or depression setting in. How should those people manage that situation? Well, you're right. I mean, if a person's already prone to anxiety and then we put them in a situation that's anxiety-provoking, that can have a double edge to it. So it can make you more anxious. But I think if people have already got clinically diagnosed mental health issues like anxiety or depression, uh, they may be more vulnerable, but they also may be quite well-placed because they have support in place. They know what's going on in their body and in their thoughts. They may have medication. They may have good self-care strategies. So in some ways, an experience of previous anxiety and depression could be helpful, although I will uh, confess that they may may need some help to be able to see that because it can be, you know, when you get stuck in your head and things spin around and around, that can be quite a lonely place to be and it can be quite hard to break that cycle. Yeah, it's fun. It's one of those easier said than done things, isn't it? You're like, you're screaming at your kids, stay calm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, don't think they're not going to notice, especially if they're teenagers. You know, we, we, we have a responsibility as adults, and I'm quite big on that. I think we, we have to lead with, you know, the way we do things. And so let's step up and see what we can do. Yeah, I, I know a person who struggles with anxiety, and one of the techniques that she uses to deal with situations like this is to have things that she does, sensual things in particular, that kind of symbolise a happier place or, or a different mindset. She'll, for example, smell lavender oil or listen to music by a particular artist, almost like a reverse trigger. Is that a technique that works for lots of people? Absolutely. You can use imagery, you can use favourite music, you can use 
you know, things that you enjoy. It's quite important to make yourself a have a list of those strategies, you know, that work for you personally because we're all different. And if people don't have that, I would advocate that they made themselves a little list of all the things that made them feel good. And then when they were really struggling, they turned to that list and chose one thing from it and did that. You talk as well about the importance of taking things one day at a time. Can you sort of elaborate a little bit on that? Why is that approach helpful? It's helpful because if you think about it, when we worry, so there's two types of worry. There's rumination, which makes us tend to look backwards and worry about things that have happened in the past and conversations with people that haven't liked us and that sort of thing. When we worry, we worry forwards, and that tends to be about things that haven't happened yet or could happen. So those two places, if you spend too much time in either the past or the future, that's unhelpful. The best place to live is right now, right here, right now. So as much as possible, it's important to have techniques to bring yourself back to what you're doing right at the moment, whether it's playing a board game with the family or cooking dinner or whatever it is. Uh, and if, as you, if you're cooking dinner or preparing a meal or something and you stay there, it's quite hard to let your worries scamper away on you. Is this sort of like a control the controllables kind of situation, that like the more control you can exercise, the more comforting it will sort of be in the long run? Uh, I think we can't control this one. So our aim should be to live alongside it. You know, life goes along anyway, doesn't it? It's always a great reminder to me when something big like this happens that that other things are still happening. So there are still car crashes and there are still people being diagnosed with cancers and there are still multiple other things. It's just not all coronavirus. So it's important not to say to ourselves, you know, when we get through this, when we get past coronavirus, we'll be able to relax. It's much better to say, what do I need to do today to cope, to have a good day? That's a, a much more helpful and healthy uh, way to frame it. It can be tempting at times like these to enter a survival of the fittest mindset. We've actually seen it a little bit, haven't we, in, in supermarket shops and yeah. so on and so forth. You sort of go to the other end of the spectrum, you extol the virtues of compassion and empathy and collectiveness. Why is that? I think our Western world is based on individualism. You know, and that can run away with us. We we tend to be a bit selfish and a bit self-absorbed and think about me, 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 and how can I make my life better? When actually that's not a particularly healthy way to live, to my mind. I think it's much better to be open and caring and to share resources and to think about the predicament other people could be in. You know, it's it's a cliche to say that other people have it worse than, than us, but they do. And there is always someone that, you know, needs probably more help than ourselves. So I think we should keep an eye on that and try to think beyond, you know, our own situation to the plight of others. Overall... What do we need to keep front of mind when dealing with this from a psychological or or anxiety point of view? Well, I'd say my two number one life skills that I think we should all really try to develop. The first one is to be able to tolerate distress. Now, this is a, a tough time and a stressful time, but if we can learn to tolerate distress... Um, and not just wish it would go away, that is a really good life skill. And the other thing is 
It's to be able to manage ourselves through uncertainty. Um, this is an uncertain time. We don't know when it's going to end. So we need to be able to structure ourselves and put things in place and be able to manage ourselves until things get a little bit easier. And as I said before, the most important thing is not to wish coronavirus away, although of course we all are, is to learn to live alongside it, um, to live as well as we can alongside it for as long as we need to. And I think if we can do that, we'll be in a better psychological space. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get the detail downloaded free to your mobile phone every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please give us a rating so other people can find us too. This episode was engineered by Blair Stagpole and produced by Alexia Russell and Mark Jennings. And thanks to Karen Nimmo. Wash your hands and ka kite anō.